Please join me in just a brief prayer before we open the word. God, we are now opening your word to us and reading it. I pray that I would read and explain it rightly, that we would hear it rightly, and that we would be doers of the word. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, some of our uh, major cities here in the U.S. have nicknames or slogans that tell us something about them or maybe something they want to be true about them. So if I say some of these, they might come to mind immediately or they might be a little abstract, but I'm not going to call Boston Beantown because I don't think that's real. No one calls it. No one calls it that. Philadelphia would be the city of brotherly love. Uh, Chicago the Windy City. This one might be a little tougher. New York, the city that never sleeps. Now, how about this one, Babylon? I'm not sure. That one might be a little harder to answer, but the Bible has quite a bit to say about Babylon. We first meet it in the book of Genesis, Genesis 11. It gets its name from, from the Tower of Babel, where the people say, let's build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the sky. Let's make a name for ourselves. They build this tower, and their self-exaltation is judged severely by God. So this this would be Babylon's pattern throughout the Old Testament. So perhaps it is the city of self-exaltation, the city of self-glorification. It would become a city that would set itself against God and his people in the pursuit of wealth, prosperity, Power, sensuality, and excess. Over time, Babylon became a very powerful city. Ironically, Babylon was involved in the destruction of Nineveh. But like Nineveh, Babylon was a lavishly wealthy city and a brutal conqueror in warfare. She would be an oppressor and captor of God's people. But Babylon would not hold this power forever. Her destruction, like Nineveh, was foretold in the Old Testament, Isaiah 47. And in 539 B.C., under the hands of Persian king Cyrus the Great, Babylon was destroyed. To this day, ancient Babylon lies in ruins underground in the Middle East. So Babylon has been destroyed, and yet all of us in this room in 2022 look forward to the fall of Babylon. If you have your Bibles, we're going to be in Revelation 18. Revelation 18. For context, we'll read verses 1 through 8. Our text this morning, describe, this evening, describes the future fall of Babylon the Great. After this, I saw another angel with great authority coming down from heaven. And the earth was illuminated by his splendor. He called out in a mighty voice, It has fallen. Babylon the great has fallen. She has become a home for demons, a haunt for every unclean spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, and a haunt for every unclean and despicable beast. For all the nations have drunk the wine of her sexual immorality, which brings wrath. The kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality with her, and the merchants of the earth have grown wealthy from her sensuality and excess. 
Then I heard another voice from heaven, Come out of her, my people, so that you will not share in her sins or receive any of her plagues. For her sins are piled up to heaven, and God has remembered her crimes. Pay her back the way she also paid, and double it according to her works. In the cup in which she mixed, mix a double portion for her. As much as she glorified herself and indulged her sensual and excessive ways, give her that much torment and grief. For she says in her heart, I sit as a queen. I am not a widow, and I will never see grief. For this reason, her plagues will come in just one day, death and grief and famine. She will be burned up with fire, because the Lord who judges her is mighty. So how can this be? How can a a city that was destroyed 2,600 years ago be destroyed again? Will it be excavated and rebuilt? Well, not quite. In order to answer that, we need to understand Revelation as a whole, as well as the vision that precedes this in chapter 17. So the book of Revelation is the final book of the Bible, and it is its epic conclusion, tying together the history and prophecy of the entire Bible. It tells us how we ought to live now in light of Christ's work on our behalf, both as the sacrificial lamb and as the roaring, conquering lion. The book is a series of visions received by John on the island of Patmos. And being a series of visions or dreams, the book is incredibly rich in symbolism. It mainly describes the state of the world from the time of Christ's first coming, leading up to and culminating in his triumphant return. So chapter 17 is another one of these visions. In chapter 17, John sees a vision of something that leaves him greatly astonished. His words, not mine. He sees a prostitute sitting on a beast that has ten heads. And on her name, on her forehead is written a name, Babylon the Great, the mother of prostitutes and of the detestable things of the earth. Astonishing vision. And then he gets the explanation in the next few verses. The angel says, The beast that you saw was and is not and is about to come up from the abyss and go to destruction. Those who live on the earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world will be astonished when they see the beast that was and is not and is to come. And so Babylon, here in the book of Revelation, has become a symbol. This is, uh, we first see this in 1 Peter chapter 5, where Peter refers to Rome by the name Babylon. Here again in Revelation, this name carries significant meaning. She's just depicted as a prostitute on a beast, named as the mother of detestable things, a representative of all the evil in the world and its system. I think it's important this language that she both was and is not and is about to come up from the abyss and to go on to destruction. It is the spirit of this woman and beast that's alive in the world today. Paul Carter says it this way, The whore of Babylon is the spirit of seductive culture, actively engaged in the deception and destruction of God's people. When we talk about the world as an enemy of the Christian, 
this is what we're talking about. A culture of self-glorification, indulgence, sensuality, and excess that is opposed to God and his people. Chapter 19 says that the blood of the martyrs is on her hands. In, in the vision in chapter 17, she's seen drinking this blood. She is opposed to the people of God and makes war on them. Our text tonight is clear. This world system, this symbolic Babylon, will fall. It will fall just as certainly as the physical city of Babylon did in 539 BC. God will execute vengeance on his enemies. So what are we to do? Look again at verses 4 through 6 in Revelation 18. Then I heard another voice from heaven, Come out of her, my people, so that you will not share in her sins or receive any of her plagues. For her sins are piled up to heaven, and God has remembered her crimes. Pay her back the way she also paid, and double it according to her works. In the cup in which she mixed, mix a double portion for her. Tonight we're mainly focused on verse 6, and our main point is this. Live with certainty as though the world is defeated and Christ is the victor. Live with certainty as though the world is defeated and Christ is the victor. And two subpoints to help us navigate that. Number one, be confident that God will judge rightly. And then secondly, align yourself with Christ the victor. Align yourself with Christ the victor. So, First, be confident that God will judge rightly. Verse 6 tells us that God's justice against the world will be complete and it will be fair. Verse 7 expands on this. As much as she glorified herself and indulged her sensual and excessive ways, give her that much torment and grief. The Lord God who judges her is mighty, and his judgment will come in proportion to her wickedness and self-glorification. This verse, I think, so closely echoes Nahum's prophecy to Nineveh, to the people who scatter, to those who scatter, one who scatters is coming. We, We thought about that this morning, and here it is again. God's judgment is fair. He will turn her own wickedness against her. Following Christ is difficult. It requires self-denial. The denial of excess and sensuality and indulgence. And it is hard to follow Christ when you're alone and feel that no one's watching. But Christian, let these verses remind you that God sees and his judgment is fair. He will repay, he will even mix a double portion. It's also hard to follow Christ in situations where we're surrounded by a crowd that seemingly does what they want and gets away with it. And it can seem like anything, they can do anything they want, and if anything, their life is easier. No battle with the self, no struggle, just live for yourself, and it's nothing but pleasure. More subtly, we can be deceived into thinking that even if there are consequences for indulging in 
sin, and all the world has to offer, that the pleasure afforded now is worth it. But this is not the case. God sees and will judge fairly. The second half of verse 6 says he'll mix a double portion in the cup in which he mix. His judgment will be complete. And not only that, but the pleasure afforded by the world now is deceptively cheap. There are far greater pleasures to be found, not just in the future, but now deeper, richer pleasures found at the right hand of God. The only way to get there is through Christ. So that brings us to our second point. Align yourself with Christ the victor. Imagine yourself dropped back in time. It's September 11, 2001. You're standing in the World Trade Center and you know what's about to happen. What would you do? Escape? Try to get everyone out? That's sort of the, the, the picture we're getting in this passage. Babylon is going to be destroyed violently. And so God's word to his people is, get out. Don't be caught up in her destruction. This is the interesting thing about verse 6. While we've thought about how it's an accurate description about how God will administer his justice fairly and in proportion to the wickedness committed against him, it's actually an imperative to his people. He's saying that they should repay her double with torment and grief. In some sense, God's people are called to participate in the destruction of his enemy. God's people are called to separate from the world and its ideology and align themselves with Christ, to insert themselves into his army and fight the world with him. Aligning ourselves with Christ means aligning ourselves against the world. To be clear, this doesn't mean making a personal enemy of each person in the world. Rather, it means living your life in such a way that you're opposed to the system of the world, its spirit, its culture, its ideology, which manifests itself in opposition to God. So how do we escape the judgment? How do we get out and align ourselves with Christ? Well, it begins, of course, with seeking refuge in Jesus for our salvation. I've used the word fair quite a bit so far to describe God's justice. And I, I normally don't like using that word because I think the way we normally use it, it comes with uh, the, the connotation of self-entitlement. You know, a child who doesn't get ice cream and says, this isn't fair. But I, I think the passage is clear that, that God's justice is fair in the sense that he, he gives back what is deserved. Well, the truth is everyone in this room deserves the fair wrath of God. If we get what is fair, we get hell. Eternal torment and separation from God. What we need is mercy. We need to be rescued from a punishment that we actually do deserve. We do deserve this destruction. But God is not only righteous, he is Merciful, And he has given his son to bear that torment, the torment we deserve, so that we might not be enemies of God, but rather sons and daughters. 
If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. The only place we find escape from the judgment of God is in Christ. We align ourselves with Christ not only in seeking our salvation in him, but also in the way we live our lives. The way we live will show where our allegiance lies, whether with Christ or the soon-destroyed Babylon. This means we'll live according to God's instruction and not according to the wisdom of our culture. From the text, I think there's a couple ways we do this. By glorifying God rather than ourselves. Verse 7, as much as she glorified herself. We can be bold with the name of Christ in situations where it does not improve our status. We can serve others in little recognized ways. This means we don't have to make a name for ourselves or build some kind of personal legacy. This is a way that runs counter to the world and its system. We can also deny ourselves sensual indulgence. I think this is more and more baffling to our culture. At one time, our culture may have seen self-control as some sort of virtue for virtue's sake, but this is less and less the case. The message of our culture, which is the message of Babylon, is to seek your own pleasure above all else, to seek your own gain and power. And when we deny ourselves for the sake of obedience to God's law, we're creating a distinction. We can also deny ourselves excess. And in this, we also find ourselves starkly opposed to the spirit of the age. When the message of our culture is to get everything you can while you can, we can live for different values. We can think about and use money differently. We can make career decisions with our service for the church in mind, as many here have done. We can give generously and deny ourselves luxury for the sake of using our money to further the kingdom of God. There are some ways we come out from the city that we are certain will be destroyed. If we align ourselves with Christ in seeking refuge for him for salvation, in living for his kingdom, we put ourselves on the winning side of this battle. We ought to live and think in a way that counts God's justice as sure and true. The final victory as certain. And again, verse 6 is a word to God's people. Pay her back the way she also paid and double it according to her works. So there's some sense in which we not only come out of the world, but participate in her downfall. Now, obviously this is a future judgment. The text says her judgment will come in a single day, or verse 9, even in a single hour. In other words, it's going to happen quickly and all at once. So it could be that verse 6 points us to a future day in which we, the church, stand behind Christ in battle as he executes Vengeance on the wicked. When we look forward to that ultimate victory at Christ's return, we can have confidence in the midst of a hostile world. Not necessarily an arrogant superiority complex, but confidence in knowing that in the end, we're on the winning side. When we're tempted to sin or mocked by our peers for our lifestyle and beliefs, or just weary in the battle, 
the promise of this victory can bring a sort of calm assurance that we're united with Christ. And there are ways that this calm assurance can be strengthened further. By the word, by prayer, communion with God in prayer, and especially fellowship with the body. When we surround ourselves with the saints, it helps us fix our eyes on that future glory. There are also ways in which we seek out justice and judgment now while we await that day. We can seek to hold people accountable for the evil they've committed. We can seek justice for the orphan, the widow, the outcast. And we can push back against the tide of our culture in political decisions that negatively impact the life and safety of vulnerable people. In other words, we can fight to bring God's kingdom to earth now in every way that we can, while also eagerly awaiting the return of Christ to truly set things right, to bring that final victory. At his return, the enemy will be finally destroyed fully and completely. Revelation tells us what happens after this. Listen as I read chapter 19. After this, I heard something like the loud voice of a vast multitude in heaven saying, Hallelujah, salvation, glory, and power belong to our God because his judgments are true and righteous because he has judged the notorious prostitute who corrupted the earth with her sexual immorality and he has avenged the blood of his servants that was on her hands. A second time they said, Hallelujah, her smoke ascends forever and ever. Then the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God who is seated on the throne saying, Amen, Hallelujah. A voice came from the throne saying, Praise our God, all his servants and the ones who fear him, both small and great. Then I heard something like the voice of a vast multitude, like the sound of cascading waters and like the rumbling of loud thunder saying, Hallelujah. Because our Lord God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us be glad, rejoice, and give him glory, because the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has prepared herself. Church, let's prepare ourselves by living with certainty as though the world is defeated and Christ is the victor. Let's pray. God, again, we just ask that you would help us to understand your word rightly and do it. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.